It's my pleasure, privilege, uh, and honor to, to really exalt something of the greatness and the goodness of God this morning as we look at Psalm 33. You might want to turn there in your Bibles. We'll be looking at that psalm. Uh, the title of the message is Fearing the God of Awesome Greatness and Abundant Goodness that we see from this psalm. And by the way, there is a handout, an outline in your worship folder. You might want to get that out. It will help you follow along in the message this morning as we work through this psalm together. Fear is a reality that most Christians face regularly. And in these last years, for many, even more forcefully. Sometimes fear can be so strong and relentless that it nearly captivates and paralyzes even committed Christians. Fear of an unknown future, fear of uncertain finances, of difficult relationships, fear of unwanted and unpredictable health problems, fear of one's responsibilities when feeling inadequate or incapable, of violence or natural disasters, fear of cultural developments hostile to our deepest Christian convictions, and many, many more. For most people, including most Christians, even deeply committed Christians, fear at some level is inescapable. And yet, there is hope. One of the greatest ironies of the Christian life and one of the most important truths that we can ever embrace is this. Fear can indeed be overcome, but it can only be overcome through fear. Fear indeed can be overcome, but it can only be overcome through fear. More precisely, fear of this world in any and every manifestation can only be overcome through fear of God. As we grow in the fear of the Lord, fear of this world diminishes. So fear God and fear nothing else. This is the message that we have from Psalm 33 this morning. You know, one of my favorite lines in all of hymnody is in the second verse of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. You remember it? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. There it is. Grace that taught my heart to fear God resulted in grace that, taught, that, that removed fears of this world. So indeed, it is so important to realize that we need that grace to see God, the fear of God, to understand what this is, that we might conquer the fears that we have in this world. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, this brings us to Psalm 33. And uh, just a few comments of introduction as we begin to look at this psalm. First of all, Psalm 33 is a psalm of David, even though it does not have the superscription at the top of the psalm that says a psalm of David. Look at Psalm 32 in your Bibles, a psalm of David. Uh, psalm 34, a psalm of David. In fact, in the first book of Psalms, this, which are Psalms 1 to 41, um, all of the Psalms are indicated as Psalms of David except four, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 10, and Psalm 33. But most scholars have come to the conclusion that all four of those are also Psalms of David for different reasons. Now here, one of the most compelling reasons is that you find the end of Psalm 32, which is a Psalm of David, is, it ends with a, a refrain and a way of speaking that is is uh, repeated basically the same as Psalm 33 begins. So look at Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And then 33, 1. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. So the, the similarity of those would indicate that the same author composed these two psalms. So in all likelihood, 
Psalm 33 is a psalm of David, and as we think through what this psalm is talking about in terms of fearing the God of awesome greatness and abundant goodness, you know David saw both of these things, didn't he? He saw the greatness of God manifest in the mighty works of God in protecting him and, and in delivering him and, and the, the ways in which God's greatness was manifest in warfare and so on. But he saw the abundant goodness of God providing for him, caring for him, his tender loving care, his forgiveness. Psalm 32, that God brought to David. So indeed, David is the, the, the author of this psalm. Secondly, it is a psalm of praise, calling for God's people to praise him, give thanks to him, sing to him with joy in light of his awesome greatness and his abundant goodness, as we'll unpack more in just a moment. It's interesting, the first three verses of Psalm 33 have five imperatives so here you have five commands that come to the people of God in three verses. So, so look at these with me. Verses 1 to 3. Sing to the Lord. There, there it is. Sing for joy to the Lord. O you who is righteous one, praise becomes to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. So five imperatives calling the people of God to to sing to God, to give praise to Him, to give thanks to Him. Why, verses 4 and 5 summarize really what we see in the rest of the psalm. It's kind of a, a glimpse of what's coming, uh, unpacking it uh, in, in, more, uh, in more detail in just a moment. Verses 4 and 5, 4, why should we sing to Him, give thanks to Him, play skillfully before Him? 4, the word of the Lord is upright, and His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So why, why should we sing praise and give thanks to God and, and, and involve ourselves with, with playing skillfully as we observed this morning and participated in? Because God is great and God is good. These two aspects are highlighted and we'll see this as they are unpacked through the rest of the psalm. Now, third, third point by way of introduction is this, that if you look through the Bible at all the instances of fear of the Lord or fearing God, as I have done, and you look at each one of them in context, you realize that the vast majority of those instances of fear of the Lord fall into two different senses of what it means to fear God or fear the Lord. And interestingly, both of those senses are in this one psalm. So it's kind of a case study in the Bible's teaching on the fear of the Lord as you see both of these. They're different, but they're complementary ideas of what it means to be God-fearing people, what it means to fear the Lord. We'll see both of these in Psalm 33. So let's begin. If, fearing, if growing in the fear of the Lord enables us to conquer fear of this world, just what does it mean to be people who fear the, God, fear the Lord? What does fearing the Lord mean? So first of all, verses uh, 6 to 12, we see fearing the God of awesome greatness. The first instance of fear of the Lord comes in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now we'll see this more in a moment, but here it's very clear that fearing God is a trembling sense of awe and wonder before God's matchless power, before His wisdom and majesty and righteous authority over all of the earth. Verses 6 to 12 observe or help, help us see the, the context and the content of the fear of the Lord as we see in, in this way of the awesome greatness of God. So what I'm going to do in each of the halves of this psalm, as it were, is look with you at both the, the context, so the verses that surround the verse that speak of the fear of the Lord, and the content of the fear of the Lord, and then follow with, with canonical witness. That is, the witness from some other passages of Scripture that help us see, yes, indeed, this is taught elsewhere in the Bible, that this is what it means to fear the Lord. So context, content, <coughs> excuse me, con context, content, and canonical witness. Okay, so first of all, context. Let's begin in verse 6 and see what the context for fear of the Lord is here. Verses 6 and 7, we read this. 
By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all of their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays the deeps in storehouses. What is the psalmist here focusing upon that has to do with fearing God? Well, here it's pretty clear in verse 6 that it has to do with God as creator, right? The one who creates everything that comes into being. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all of their host. Now, it's possible that verse 6 is written with Hebrew parallelism that would indicate the word of the Lord and the breath of his mouth are really referring to the same thing. That's a possibility because that often happens in Hebrew, that you have a different way of saying the same thing. Uh, in fact, we'll see that is the case in verse 8 in just a moment. So, so when you speak the word, breath comes out of your mouth, right? So, so that makes sense. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. Now, what's interesting, though, is it's possible that indeed, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, David might be articulating something here that is really beyond his own understanding at this point, in terms of special revelation that has been given to the people of God thus far at this point, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. There may be something here about the Trinity that is being revealed. By the word of the Lord, now think in terms of how we know in the New Testament creation happens right? You think of John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being, right? So by the Word of the Lord, and of course you realize, boy, He's also hearkening back to Genesis 1, how did God create in Genesis 1? Speaking, then God said, then God said, then God said. So all the six days of creation are, are, are preceded by then God said. So here is the word of the Lord, John 1, who is the speech of God. So indeed, it may in fact be that the word of the Lord in verse 6 is a reference to the Son, who is the agent of the Father in creating the world, but then the breath of his mouth. The second phrase in verse 6. This is the word ruach in Hebrew that's used in this verse. The, the, the ruach Adonai is the spirit of the Lord. So the word ruach can be translated as breath as it is here, the breath of his mouth, but it can also be the spirit of the Lord. So perhaps what the psalmist is doing or the Holy Spirit through the psalmist is saying is by the word of the Lord, the sun, the heavens are made, by the breath of his mouth, the spirit, all of, all of the hosts, um, all of their hosts. So indeed, it could be in fact this, this bringing together of the work of the Spirit and, and the Son in creation. So the Son, of course, is, is uh, clearly shown in the New Testament as creator, but we don't have a lot on the Spirit. We do know, though, that the Spirit is present in creation, don't we? How do we know that? Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And so we know the Spirit is present in creation. And I don't think that we would know about that in Genesis chapter 1 if it, didn't, if it wasn't significant that the Spirit was there. So when you ask the question, what was the Spirit's role in creation? Honestly, we don't have a clear answer from the Bible on that, as we do with the Son. But with the Spirit, I think it is likely that the Spirit's role in creation matches His role in recreation, otherwise known as salvation, regeneration. And what does the Spirit do in recreation? The Spirit is the one who gives life to what is dead, right? He regenerates. You must be born of water and the Spirit. So indeed, water brings life, Spirit brings life, and indeed, life-giving Spirit is a theme that we see in, in our Christian life and what it means to come to Christ by, by the Spirit. So may it not be that indeed in the original creation, the Son is the one who brings into being what is there, and then for that which needs life, the Spirit enlivens that. We see that in Genesis 2-7, don't we? God formed man from the dust of the ground and then breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. So indeed, verse 6, 
I'm inclined to think may indeed be a Trinitarian indicator of the role of the Son and the Spirit in creation. But in either case, whether it's the weaker understanding of verse 6, it's a, a, a parallelism that indicates uh, Genesis 1, the word of the Lord, the breath of his mouth creating, or whether it's, uh, it's more specifically the Son and the Spirit in creation, it's creation. We know that for sure, that w- what the psalmist is highlighting. So then he goes on from verse 6, after speaking about creation, to one aspect of creation that's early in Genesis chapter 1. He says, He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Now, some commentators have thought this is a reference to the, the parting of the Red Sea, you know, laying the waters in a heap. And that's a possibility, but the context here is clearly creation, both at this point and also in verse 9. We'll see in a moment. And so I think it's better to stick with Genesis 1 and see if we can make sense of it there. And indeed, in Genesis 1, it speaks of waters, doesn't it? So look back with me for a moment. In Genesis chapter 1, for the second and third days of creation. Genesis 1, the second and third days of creation. At verse 6, we read this. After he created light, let there be light. Then verse 6 comes the second day, we read. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. And then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into, into one place, and let the dry land appear. And God called the dry land earth, and he called the gathering of the waters, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So let's stop there and realize, so, so the waters are a very important part of the creation story. And so you realize what the psalmist here is focusing on is in all likelihood this gathering of the waters that God does, putting an expanse between the waters that are above and the waters that are below. Now the waters below are obviously the oceans, the seas. And you think that what, what the psalmist here is, is marveling at the fact that God brought about these oceans, these mighty seas, the, these expansive bodies of water with all that eventually contain the animals that are in them, all the, all the sea creatures that are there, all created by God. So he's marveling at that, but he's also marveling at the expansive waters that are above. So I begin thinking about that. It, it is really an amazing thing to think of how much water is up there in the sky, right? We know it's there because it ends up coming down in the form of rain, right? So indeed, how much water is up there? So I did a little searching. You know, Google is wonderful, right? I did a little searching. And here's what I discovered. That for every acre of land, one inch of water that falls, so one inch on one acre, brings 27,000 gallons of water. 27,000 gallons for one inch of rain in one acre. Now, how much does a gallon weigh? A little over eight pounds. So let's just use eight as a, as a round number here. So 27,000 gallons by eight pounds. Guess what? One inch of water on one acre weighs up there in the heavens before it drops. One, I'm sorry, 200,000 pounds, 100 tons of water is one inch of rain in one acre. I mean, you just realize how much is up there. I mean, it's like thousands of Empire State Buildings are up there in the sky, all this weight that is contained there, and God doesn't dump it all in one place at one time. Oh my goodness, what a disaster that would be. He drops it in droplets and scatters it all over the country. I mean, isn't it an incredible thing what God has done in the storehouses of the waters above and the storehouses of the waters below? That's verse 7. Amazing. Isn't God phenomenally powerful and and, and ingenious in the way that he designs things? So that's the background in verses 6 and 7. Then we have verse 8. We'll come back to it. 
where we see the earth, the whole earth fears the Lord. We'll come back to that. Now, verse 9, he summarizes again creation. So he says, For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So I think verse 9 is important because it establishes the fact that this is the command of God. This isn't just something that God willy-nilly did. These were His plans. These are His purposes. And nothing can thwart the hand of God from accomplishing what He chooses to do. So indeed, He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Now at that point, He shifts from creation to God's providential rulership over what He has made. And that's the subject then of verses 10 and 11. (coughs) Excuse me. Verses 10 and 11, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of peoples. Verse 11, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Do you see the contrast there? So indeed, verse 10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. I mean, think, think of the nations out there. Vladimir Putin, our own president. The, 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 uh, Iran, Iraq, uh, the, the, uh, China, uh, uh, all, of the, all of the places in this world where plans are being made, where, where there are strategies being put in place. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So my friends, do not forget verse 11 when you watch what's happening in the news. Don't think that they have the final say, that what they're deciding will be ultimately what will happen. Or, or that in some way, if they succeed in what they're doing, they're frustrating God's plans. Are you kidding? Look at verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. So indeed, God does according to His will in the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? That's in Daniel 4. I mean, indeed, He is sovereign over everything that takes place in the nation. So here you have this picture of God who is great and mighty and majestic, creating everything, separating the waters, controlling the waters above, controlling the waters below, and then the one who governs the nations of the world. This is the great and mighty and awesome God. That's the context for verse 8. So look with me again now at verse 8. As we take a look at the fear of the Lord here. So let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. So what does, what's the content of the fear of the Lord? What, what does it mean here? And you can tell what it means not only by the context. Fear of the Lord, His awesome greatness, His, His, His magnificence, His power, His might, His wisdom, His knowledge, His control, His authority overall. Not only the context, but the very content here. You can see from the very verse, right? Because of synonymous parallelism. He states the same thing twice in different language. So, let the, let the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world, you see earth and inhabitants of the world are parallel, two ways of talking about the same thing, right? Well, so it is with the second phrase. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world Stand in awe of Him. So there it is. That's what it means to fear the Lord, is to stand in awe of God, to tremble before Him because of the magnificence of His power, His irresistible authority. His ways are always right and always done as He so wills. So indeed, fear the Lord. Stand in awe of Him. Now, Let me take a look at some other passages with you. Canonical witness, where you see the same idea of the fear of the Lord expressed with some nuances of of difference, but still the same basic idea. First of all, in Joshua 4, verses 22 to 24, the context here is the people of Israel had crossed the Jordan River. They were commanded to take 12 stones from the river and put them in Gilgal. And, And God told the people, that when the children asked what these stones mean, here's what they were to say. Verse 22, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground 
For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed there, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That you may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so indeed, he's the one who dried up that Jordan River for the people of Israel to come into the promised land. As he did, he references back to the Exodus, as he did the Red Sea, that he dried up to let the people of Israel walk through that as well. And it's interesting, if you look at Exodus 14, I didn't include that here on your handout, but if you look at the end of Exodus 14, it's very clear there that again they fear God because they see the, the waters of the sea come back over the soldiers and they're not only seeing God delivering them but they're seeing the Red Sea cover the enemies of Israel who are drowned in that sea they see bodies floating on the water and they fear God so indeed they realize oh the hand of God is mighty to judge those who oppose him and to bless and benefit those who are his own people Psalm 90 verse 11 is another statement of this sense of the fear of God who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you now this is interesting because this is one of the verses there are many like it in the Old Testament that speak of the fear of God yes and his awesome greatness but in his greatness to bring judgment upon those who oppose him who, who to stray from his ways the, the fear of knowing that God's just hand can come against you if you are against him. So he wants his people to know, don't do that. Don't turn away from me and risk the danger of incurring my wrath upon you. So indeed, Psalm 90 verse 11, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you. So you fear the Lord by knowing walking in his way is the only way to be secure and know that you will not come under the wrath of God. You will not come under his anger because you walk in the ways of the Lord. And then Psalm 96, verses 4 to 6. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens, there's creation again. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? To acknowledge he is the one who has strength and beauty. He is the one who has might and majesty. He is the one who has created all things. And so we honor him. We tremble before him. We acknowledge his awesome greatness. He is the only true God. Okay, that's the first meaning of the fear of the Lord. We see in the Old Testament, we see here in Psalm 33. But now here's the second one. We move on to verses uh, 13 to 22, 13 to 22, fearing the God of abundant goodness. And our second verse of fear of the Lord comes in verse 18. Again, right smack dab in the middle of this section, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his steadfast love. So here, fearing God is a confident and expectant trust. A confident and expectant trust that God will provide, protect, sustain, and show his abundant goodness toward those who look to him alone for their deepest needs and longings. So while God is awesome in his greatness, he's also abundant in his lavish love and kindness. And this elicits fear of the Lord. So consider the, the context now first. The context, verses 13 to 22. Let's look uh, first at verses 13 to 17. 13 to 17. Let me read and you follow along. The Lord looks from the heavens and he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of all of them. He who understands all of their works. 
The king is not saved by a mighty army. The warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So here the focus of attention is on, not on God, the great God who is, it were, above us in the heavens, but here is God who is with us as the one who is present in, with all of us, knowing everything that happens in all of our lives. Isn't that incredible? I mean, those verses 13 and 14 refer to the omnipresence of God. The Lord looks from heaven and He sees all the sons of men. He knows every single person out there. Right? He knows everything that's happening with them. Verse 14, from His dwelling place He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So indeed, there is this marvelous teaching in the Bible of the omnipresence of God that He is everywhere present. So there can be no private action, no private thought no, no, no private attitude. God knows everything about us. He knows everything that we do, everything that we fail to do. He knows it all. And of course, this is the basis ultimately of the judgment that will come. There will come a judgment on all people according to the Bible, even on believers. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 5.10? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. Yes, so we are included in this, that we will stand before God and everything we have done, unbelievers will stand before God. Everything they have done will be brought out into the open. Now for believers, the marvelous news is this, that though we will see for the first time all of our sin, if you think you know all of your sin now, think again. We have poor memories. Uh, we... we Give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we, we, we're not even aware of some ways in which we sin that the Lord hasn't even convicted us of yet. Right? So indeed, the day will come though when every sin will be brought out into the open and we will see it. But standing before us will be our Savior with nail-pierced hands. And we know He paid it all so it will be a moment of incredible humble thanksgiving before our savior who paid the penalty for all of our sin and and we will have a sense the first time we will have a sense of how big that is how much that is that he paid for so that's for believers, a marvelous sense of the, the forgiveness that Christ brings us for all of our sin. For the unbeliever, oh my, it's a different story, isn't it? According to the book of Revelation 20, chapter 20, the books of works are opened and people are judged according to their works. Everything they have done will be brought against them on a day of judgment and be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So indeed, God sees it all. He, he did, no, nothing escapes his notice. There is no private action or sin or, or, or attitude or, or uh, aspiration. Everything is known by God. And then he goes on in verses 15 to 17. So why do you look elsewhere? Since God is the one who is there for you, why do you look elsewhere? Verse 16. Um, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. The horse is a false hope in victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So why are you looking out there, you know, as it were, horizontally at things that you think could help you? Why, why do you think, I can figure this out, or I can go to this person, or, or that's the solution out there, and you don't go vertically to the Lord? How foolish we are to do that, right? How foolish to go horizontally first. What we need to do is develop an instinct, an impulse, a reflex to go vertical. Go to God first. Don't, don't start thinking of mom and dad can help me or my neighbor over there could, you know, think God is my refuge. God is my strength. God is my hope. I look to him for what I need. So indeed, this is what the psalmist is urging. Don't be the king who thinks his mighty army can do it. Don't be the, the soldier who thinks his horse can deliver him. Don't be that way. Don't look horizontal. Go vertical, right? Look to God. And of course, that's amplified now in the verses that follow. So moving on now to verses 18 to 22. 18 we'll come back to again. This is the verse that has the fear of the Lord in it. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his, his steadfast love. Now, verses 19 to 22, to deliver their soul from death 
to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. You see it? Okay, now let me just give you an illustration of, because what, what is he's talking about here is a focused attention of God on his own people. Verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those, the eye of the Lord, the gaze, the attentive care, <coughs> provision, protection of God is on those who fear him. He, he is the one who will deliver their soul from death, keep them alive in famine. He is our help, our shield, and so on. So here is this God who is focused in his attention on his own people. Now, how does that relate to verses 13 and 14 where he's the omnipresent God? I mean, he's, he's there with everyone. What does it mean that he's there with his people? Well, so yes, God is omnipresent. He sees everything. But his presence with his own people is a special presence. I, I think of it as the manifest presence of God. The, the presence by which his power, his wisdom, his protection is granted to his own. So here's the illustration. It's really a feeble illustration because I'm a feeble dad. Okay, but here it is. I remember there were times when our two girls, who are now grown, Bethany and Rachel, were, were at the playground. I mean, they were little girls, and they were learning to navigate the monkey bars. You know, that's tricky stuff. And, uh, and learning to climb those stairs. You know, they were so high, those stairs up to the to top of the slide to take the slide down. And, uh, and I was with all the kids in the playground, right? That's the omnipresence idea. I was there with all of them, but my eye was fixed on my two girls, right? There to, yes, sometimes, Jody could testify, catch, you know, before they hit the ground. And, and uh, so, so, so that you have this attentive gaze of a father on his own children. Well, I'm a feeble dad. I could miss, I, I could fail to be there, but God is omnipotent he cannot fail he's the one whose gaze is upon those who fear him oh my goodness what hope and strength there is in that right so indeed he is the one who is there to keep them to deliver them to to provide for them to protect them he is their god the one who wants to be the one who will care for his people now I think oftentimes when we go horizontal instead of going vertical, we do diminish something of the godness of God for his people. We, we in a sense, defame him, don't we? Because it indicates a lack of trust in him when we go horizontal instead of going vertical. Let me give you another illustration. This is another odd one because actually the illustration is about something that did not happen. But here it is. I remember one time when we lived in Portland, Oregon. I was teaching at Western Seminary and we lived in a house just south of Western, off of Hawthorne Boulevard. And uh, it was a corner lot. And um, um, we had a hill coming down the side of the house and then it went straight in the front. It was level in the front. Well, I was out there building up uh, a porch railing, which is still there, by the way. It's, it's really the only triumph I've had with woodworking, but it's, it's still there, so I'm, I'm glad about that. In any case, I was building this porch railing, and Rachel, who had just gotten a tricycle for her birthday, she was three years old, was riding her tricycle down the slope of the side of the house, and I knew she was going too fast to make the corner. You could just tell. She's not going to do this, you know. And, uh, and, and we had told her, never go out in the street. So I knew she would not keep going straight. She would turn. And sure enough, what happened was she turned the corner, tipped over, scraped her knee. And so she got up crying and, and with, with her wounded knee and was running down the sidewalk. And I ran down the, the front walkway down the, from the middle of the house <coughs> to meet her and picked her up and took her in the house and bandaged her wound, cleaned it and hugs and kisses and wiped away tears and all those things that a loving father loves to do for his sweet and precious daughter. Now, here's what I, the thought that came into my mind. I don't know why it did. It's weird, but it did. It came into my mind. My neighbor happened to be outside at the same time on his front porch right next door and he was working with some plants out there 
And the thought occurred to me, what if Rachel, in her time of need, after she had fallen from her tricycle, had run down the sidewalk, and instead of turning up the walkway to me, into my arms, she went on down one more house and ran up and, and, and ran into the arms of my neighbor, who took her in and cleaned her wound and, and took care of her. How, how would that make me feel as her dad? And the answer is, it would make me feel horrible. Absolutely horrible. I would say, Rachel, don't you know I'm your dad? I'm the one who is committed to you. I'm the one who loves you, who wants to care for you. Don't you know that I, I will do everything I can for your well-being? Why wouldn't you come to me? Honestly, I think this is the way the Lord feels toward us. Sometimes, right? When we go everywhere else, and then when everything else fails, finally, you know, out of desperation, we go to Him. So, Develop a reflex to go vertical first. Amen? Amen. And see God work as you put your hope and trust in Him. So indeed, this is the context then of the fear of the Lord, is, is this put, putting your trust in God because He is for you. He's the one who will provide. His gaze is upon those who fear Him. Now, verse 18, what's the content of the fear of the Lord? Well, it's very simple again because we have synonymous parallelism in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who, what? Hope for His steadfast love. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? To hope, to wait upon, to trust in, to bank on His steadfast love love. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And again, that's, that's uh, as, it, as it were repeated at the end of the psalm, verse 22, so let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you, waited upon you, trusted in you. So yes, fear of the Lord is this trembling sense of the awesome greatness of God, but it's a trusting sense of the goodness of God that He is for you. Now let me just ask you, do you believe that, that God is for you? Do, do you realize that if you don't believe that, if you're not convinced of that, you will not go to Him first and foremost, will you? You'll go to anything else that you think is for you. You know, my folks, my folks are for me. They'll, they'll help me. <coughs> you will not go to the Lord unless you know that He is for you. Here's a verse that will help you. Know that He is for you. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him give us all things? All things. So indeed, God is for His people. He works everything together for good. Romans 8.28, For those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. So indeed, God who is for you is the one that we trust. We put our hope in. We wait for Him. Even when we wait long, we wait in difficulties. We wait for Him. So indeed, that's the hope that we have in the Lord. Now, let's take a look at some of the canonical witness. We've seen the context, the content. Now some canonical witness. Other passages where we hear this. Psalm 31, verse 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you. There it is again, right? So what does it mean to fear the Lord? To take refuge in Him, knowing what? That He has this storehouse of goodness that is for you, that is there for you. Now, we just have to be careful here. I just realized in the context in which we you know, live today, we have to make certain things clear. One of them is this. When, when a verse like this speaks of the goodness of God, He's stored up for those who, who fear Him, that when you read about the goodness of God, it doesn't translate into health and wealth. It doesn't translate into the prosperity gospel. This is absolutely false. I mean, think of Jesus Himself who feared the Lord in the most perfect way you could. I mean, Isaiah 11 verses 2 and 3 indicates this, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, the Spirit of knowledge and understanding, of wisdom, and of the fear of the Lord. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. Nobody feared the Lord like Jesus did, and yet persecuted, had no place to lay his head, 
sent to the cross to die for our sins? I mean, the suffering that he endured? So, so indeed, you, you realize, boy, th- this message that if you, you know, trust in the Lord and put your hope in him that he'll give you a BMW, you know, or, or t- take away all your health problems, it just is not true. What he will do is this, ah, it's so much better than that false gospel. He will guarantee that everything that happens in your life will assist and further your growth in Christ-likeness. But that may well include through difficulties and suffering and affliction, but all with the purposeful hand of God for your good. Do you see it? So indeed, yes, storehouses of goodness that will never run out that God has for those who take refuge in Him, fear Him. Psalm 34, verses 8 to 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord, notice seek the Lord, fear the Lord, how similar those are, right? Those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So young lions, why does he pick out young lions? Well, if there's anything in the forest that can get whatever it wants, it's a young lion, right? They're kind of king on the hill. Not, not the old lions. They're, they're a little bit past the, the, the prime. But the young lion, they can get anything they want. But in comparison, the young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who fear the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Again, remember the previous comments about what is good. Good as God defines what is good. But isn't that so strengthening to believe He will grant you everything that is good for your growth, for your flourishing, for for your vitality as His child in, in making you more like Christ and fulfilling everything in you that He has designed for you. He will not fail as you look to Him. And then finally, Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord... Who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be loved. Now that would be a natural thing to say and it would be true. But that's not what it says, right? Of course we love the Lord because of His forgiveness. But that you may be feared. Now what's the connection there? You fear the Lord because of His forgiveness because you realize a gift like that, so great, so precious, so extensive. You can't do anything but follow, serve, love, adore that one who forgave you all of your sin. That's the idea. So your heart is given to Him. You you turn from your sin and follow Him because of His great forgiveness. So indeed, God is a God of awesome greatness and abundant goodness. And that elicits from us a heart that wants to follow Him above all else. That's the fear of the Lord. So, a few points of application as we conclude. (coughs) First of all, fear of God conquers fear of this world because God is greater than any and all in the world and God is unfailingly good to those who look to Him. Do you see it? So how, how does fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord and fear nothing else, why, why is that the case? Because fearing God brings you this God who is greater than anything that you face, greater than any enemy, greater than any obstacle, greater than any issue that you're facing. God is for you. Who can be against you? Right? So indeed, the greatness of God leads you not to fear what is before you and you don't fear loss. You don't fear lack because God is infinitely good. He he, he is for you, providing. So look to Him. Fear Him and you know you will have what you need. So indeed, fearing the Lord results in not fearing anything else in this world. Secondly, Fearing the God of awesome greatness promotes humility that is deep and genuine and pervasive. 
It leads to shunning of sin and pursuit of righteousness as God is righteous. Boy, we see that, don't we? Especially when you see these contexts of the fear of God's awesome greatness where he is against those who turn away from him. Oh my, we don't want that. We want to repent of our sin and follow the path of God's righteousness, the law of the Lord, that we may enter into true life (coughs) and turn away from that pathway that would invite the judgment of God, the discipline of God upon our lives. So fearing God leads us to repentance. Don't you see that in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah saw the Lord, awesome, greatness, holy. And what happened to Isaiah? Woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. So he realized his own sin and then God brought forgiveness to him and he wanted nothing else but to serve the Lord because of that. So indeed, Seeing the God of awesome greatness leads to a deep humility and a repentance and a longing to walk in His ways. Number three, fearing the God of abundant goodness promotes a joyous acceptance of hardships and hopefulness knowing that God will not fail to do what is best for His own who fear Him. So, my goodness, to to know God is for me, putting my hope in Him, I will never lose, right? It's like Jesus said, the one who wants to keep his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake, he will find it, right? This is true life in following after the Lord. Seek Him, trust in Him, wait upon Him, and enter into life at its best, indeed. Finally, number four, we can only know this God of awesome greatness and abundant goodness only through Christ Jesus. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. So indeed, my friends, I don't know if some of you out here or perhaps hearing uh, online uh, have never put your hope and trust in Christ Jesus. You need to know that if you refuse to put your trust in Christ, you stand with those whom God knows all of your sin, all the things that you are accountable for before Him, and you will stand in the day of judgment paying for your own sin. That's where you are. Only in Christ do you receive His payment on your behalf and, and are released from the obligation of paying for it yourself and enter instead into right relationship with God in this God of awesome greatness and abundant goodness. So indeed, turn from your sin, trust in Christ, and enter into life. That's my plea for you. Well, my my goodness, friends, we, we have a great God, a God of awesome greatness, abundant goodness, and He is ours to pursue day by day with all of our hearts to know Him, love Him, serve Him, and find in Him our greatest joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time, (coughs) this morning, (coughs) for the privilege we've had to look through this passage which unfolds just a bit of how great and glorious and gracious and good You are. And Lord, give us hearts that want to know You more and pursue You and, and find You to be the source of our greatest joy and comfort and strength in life. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.